Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. Well, howdy! Welcome to Herb's Podcast Christmas Trees. What can I do for you, son? Well, I'm looking for a podcast Christmas tree for our show. What do you have? Oh, we got some nice new finger ones right here. Uh, yeah. Kind of anything more traditional? Well, let me see. about this? But puny, isn't it? Well, put some lights on, some tinsel. Why, it'll be as pretty as a milkmaid's knee. Okay, okay. I'll take it. Pleasure to do business with you, son. By the way, what's your podcast? <clears throat> Live from the internet, it's the Tritech Games Christmas Podcast. This is Bruce. This is John. This is Blix. And this is Trav. With Trav as her proxy, we also have Amber. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast, your podcast of weathering the winter storms and making a party out of it. Ho, ho, ho. This week we are doing our annual holiday episode, and we are going to discuss winter festivals, traditions, and all kinds of things like that. How you play it in your games, how they are in real life, the backgrounds for them, and how to make your game and hopefully your holiday even better than before. Yep. Okay, but before we start that, we have a special segment that was posted to our Facebook page. Friends were the RPG fans. Uh, one of our posters asked... Considering that we have the fringe paths are connected to a million million worlds, what kind of strange and unusual things show up on a fringe worthy's holiday meals table? It, what would you include in your holiday meal uh, if you were a fringe worthy sport or somebody who was connected to the fringe paths and could have the opportunities for things that were un, a bit unusual? John, do you have any ideas on that? Demixie, they arrive with, well, bugs arthropods, but basically big bugs. Of course, they're alive because, well, they're spiders, and spiders don't eat dead things. They actually eat living things. Uh, so, yeah, they'll, they'll show up with, you know, baskets of wrapped, you know, wrapped in silk bugs ready for dinner. You know, and uh, yeah, like in living, too. So, yeah. Now, for, for us humans, you, if you treat them like big lobsters or big or big crabs, you can probably get, get by, but... You can be seeing the table with a Demixie. Uh, you gotta understand, they're spiders, which means uh, they will stab the stab the bug with the with with a proboscis and inject it with digestive enzymes and let it sit for a little bit, you know, and say grace, and then come back and slurp out the insides. <clears throat> Down home cooking. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, Pip did bring up. It depends on your culture. Some cultures here on Earth do eat live bugs. Yeah, probably Africa, South America. Yeah. I think. The Australian Aborigines probably do that. So, yeah. a lot of them eat roasted locusts, which are essentially large grasshoppers. Yeah, but you know, we're talking bugs the size of a dinner plate or bigger. 
Well, they can't be much bigger, John, well, unless they have an internal skeleton. Well, yeah, the Mixies got it. This is the this, this is the world where the Mixies, you know, their size are what a human or, or a little bit bigger. Yeah, obviously there were other arthropods that got the same size or larger. Well, they're they're probably not technically arthro- arthropods. They'd be some other classification because they also have an internal skeleton, but yeah, and they also have lung, they have some sort of lung-like system inside. Maybe not lungs, but a system that's much more efficient than spiracles on a bu- on a bug. So let's just stick with bug. Yeah, bug works <laughs> because a bug isn't an insect. It's it's, it's it is right. what it is. It's a bug. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bug. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but other cultures, though, I mean, you know, Victorians would probably show up with something very traditional. You know, goose, uh, probably a pudding or something like that. You know, more traditional fare. Blood pudding? Blood pudding, yep. I like my suggestion. What was that? Well, I'm going to go off to the reserve, and I'm going to shoot me one of the original big birds, and we're going to have a big, giant bird on our table of Tyrannosaurus. <laughs> because, as most People don't generally tend to know the Tyrannosaurus come from a line of feathered dinosaurs. And the Tyrannosaurus most likely was a feathered dinosaur. Theropods, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's the, the the original big bird. If you can't get a T-Rex, there's definitely, there are definitely uh, raptors of sorts, so they're turkey size. You can have a raptor turkey. Depends on how many you're feeding. Yep. And, of course, if you want to go not quite so far into the uh, distant, distant past... There are lots, lots of are either extinct or considered endangered species on our planet, which are in great abundance on other worlds. Passenger pigeon, uh, certainly the dodo, which has not been eaten for over a century. Right, right. And then there's uh, there's a bunch of terror birds that were like 10 foot tall that that disappeared shortly after uh, the first Americans arrived. And I mean the first Americans. One thing I was considering is what would a Tazeel bring? Tazeels and Demixi are both carnivores. They, you know, they don't eat vegetables. Well, they do, but they get them from their prey. So what would a Tazeel bring You know, in terms of, you know, this probably is a regular meal. It would be bringing a big old lizard or something for dinner. So it tastes like alligator. Don't Kegak taste like chicken? Mmm. Roasted Kegak. <laughs> <laughs> They're big horny toads, so yeah, you know. <laughs> well, no, technically, remember, the Kegak was uplifted from the Deinonychus dinosaur, so, well, yeah, they would take chicken. Yeah, right. <laughs> hey, I can tell you right now, I'll eat a Kegak. <laughs> I'll eat a fistful of Kegaks before I'll eat a single nasty slug. <laughs> Slugs will eat you, huh? <laughs> it's true, they are omnivores. Yeah. Yeah. They're scavengers, you know. Yeah, they're scavengers. They'll eat carrion. They'll eat, you know, anything. Well, slurs like their meat, you know, if they if you don't cook it to it's really nice and tender, they'll they'll drag it into their into wherever they're staying and let age until it's ready to go. <laughs> Well, keep in mind the fact that slargs, as, as cute and lovable as they are now, were originally designed to be combat monsters. So therefore they would be designed with a very generous and sturdy digestive system, which they have exhibited in all their interactions with the various races that, that walk and talk and climb and crawl across the fringe pads. They'll eat anything you give them. That's right. Of course, 
can you see it now? They're drawing straws to see who has to sit next to the slarg member. It's like, oh, he is so disgusting. <laughs> His food goes everywhere. Yeah, you don't want to be across from the slarg either. <laughs> he yeah. doesn't have any cheeks. Yeah, the slarg, the slarg will insist on getting a plate. Oh, yeah. Even though a, a bowl would be better suited for a slarg. A, a bucket, <laughs> like Mr. Korea's site. And, and the brewpeen is across the table going, man, why did I get stuck across from this guy? It's three brewpeens. It, it, they're always in threes. There'll be three brewpeens sitting across with their tendrils out going, okay, we're going to absorb this stuff, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> or actually, they, they go... Oh, wait, I said yeah. Brupians. I meant Blizzness. Oh, yes, Blizzness. So the Blizzness sitting across the table going, I don't want to sit across from this guy. <laughs> A herbivore sitting across from the carnivore, or at least the omnivore. Yeah, that's going to be fun. <laughs> yeah, but with their rock-throwing capability, they're probably catching all the bits of food that are coming toward them and just flinging it back. Ah, but don't forget they have their, their pacification field going. So? They'll calm the slarg down so he won't eat as, or she won't eat as fast. Slow down. I don't know. I, I, I don't think that would make any difference to the slarg. I don't, I don't think so. Well, you know, that, that, you know, that business is going to be sitting there with his eyeballs bulging as he's going to try to make it make a difference. You know? <laughs> so do, they, do the, the Golden Horde show up with hummus, their fermented milk? Oh. Oh, definitely some fermented milk, yes, because that's a very favorite drink, is nicely fermented, not cow's milk, it's mare's milk. Mare's milk, eh. Mare's milk, oh, yeah. Yeah, but it'll, it, I mean, you drink it, you're not, you're on your butt. Yeah. I'll take your word for it. You know, and other meats as well. They did hurt sheep, and they did hurt other ones, so they may bring some mutton as well. Yeah, mutton, I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, you know, and the blizzness. Uh thank you for the bale of hay. It's alfalfa. Oh, alfalfa. <laughs> I mean a nice alfalfa casserole. <laughs> the Brupians just dropped some acorns on the table. <laughs> well, I was thinking their contribution to the table, you know, a couple apples drop off of them. Here, have a bite. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Brupian, we don't know their trees until, you know, they, they settle down. I'm not sure what Brupians eat. What do Brupians eat? Well, they have to eat. Yeah, they show up with a sun lamp. <laughs> well, they're, they're, they're but they're probably omnivores. I mean, they'll eat just anything because, well, let's be honest, plants are omnivores too. They eat whatever gets put in the soil. <laughs> right. I would think they would eat a very simple broth of some kind. Don't the Brupians yeah. eat like Limburger cheese? They really, you know, like smell. Bru- yes, cheese. Yes, it's cheese. It's either the Brupians or the or the or the, uh, or the Pangolisk. One of them likes. It was the Brupians. Yes, rancid cheese. So no, yes, they they they'd supply, they'd come up with some Camembert and some Limburger and some of those other French cheeses that smell like they've gone bad, you know, you know, really bad, you know. And you're wondering, okay, it's, we put them across the slurry because otherwise, you know, right. no one's going to sit next to the Brupians <laughs> as they're busy, you know, chowing down on rotten cheese. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't care if bits of food land on them. But the thing is, this is a sharing meal, so of course everyone wants to share what you know. So of course the the, the slugger wants to sla- share what's been sitting in, the, in in her in her room for the past three weeks. <laughs> well, the slugger's going to be sharing with everybody anyway. <laughs> yeah, whether you want it or not, it's yeah. how they eat. And of course, there's always the possibility that a meller will show up, and he just eats all the guests. 
Oh, yeah, which kind? If it's an old Miller, you know, he'll sit down very nicely and he'll supply, you know, whatever he feels appropriate for the girl and, and, and he'll just eat, you know. So actually with a master Miller, he, master Miller would do the exact same thing while shaking everyone's hands in the process. <laughs> See, that, that's the thing about a Miller. Depending on the type of Miller, he can either have you over for dinner or he can have you over for dinner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Big difference there with the semantics and the type of Miller. But we're also avoiding some of the rather more interesting things that could be out there because the Commonwealth is still out there and the Tameller love all kinds of strange things. And there's no reason to think that their food isn't mobile and uh, possibly very solicitous of being eaten and might make suggestions on how to, to let itself be prepared. Hello, I'm a food beast. Look at these pods on my side, Pop. This one tastes like Salisbury steak, clunk. <laughs> this one's got gravy in it. It grows pods in the side. You pick them and you cut them up and fix them. Uh, <laughs> you don't kill the creature. The creature just makes grows new pods. <laughs> Well, or it may split into two and say, okay, now I've got a spare. Go ahead. I mean, they could just fission as many people. Oh, we have another guest fission. <laughs> now we've got enough for everybody. Might have the same rate of division as bacteria and be a matter of a couple hours be able to feed an army. So, hey, remember this if you're going to play a diplomat character in Friendsworthy. You know, if you're playing a, a soldier, you can get out of this dinner by pulling duty. Or just by being a guard. If you're the diplomat, you have to sit there and eat with all of this. So just keep that in mind. (laughs) Because I ran my players through uh, the Mongolians. What a Mongolian royal feast would be like. Because they did meet the Khan. And yeah, they were there for for six hours eating. (laughs) It could literally run on for days. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and all kinds of food. Because, hey, the Mongols conquered have conquered up right up to the Atlantic Ocean and up to the Pacific Ocean and almost down to uh, North Africa. So what, what the Khan eats is coming from all over Eurasia and North Africa. So there's Moroccan foods. There's all, I mean, well, not Moroccan, but North African foods. There's Middle East foods. There's some stuff from Nepal, maybe a little bit from India, and definitely stuff from Southeast Asia. So he's, he has a groaning board, what he can have for his feast. And if you follow the the normal traditions, between each of the courses, you're going to have a course that's designed to cleanse your palate so that you'll be ready to enjoy fully the flavors of the next course that will be coming out. So you'll be having sherbets, you'll be having breads of different kinds, some soups, probably lots of fruit. And, of course, those would be from, all the way from apples to uh, pineapple and, and everything else. And considering that he's got Southeast Asia, you'll be getting a really fragrant one. You, in fact, you know he's going to serve it probably hours before he does it because when you walk past the kitchen, you'll smell it. Durian. Yeah, never heard of it. And I have no idea what that is, John. Durian is a Southeast Asian melon-like fruit. And when it's ripe... You can tell within two miles that it's ripe because it smells like, well, it smells like dung. Oh, is that the one that they don't allow on airplanes? It says it kind of smells okay. like cheese to her, so. Yeah, but basically it's got this horrid smell. I actually have a local Japanese mega a supermarket here and they sell durian, but you know, you walk inside and you don't, it's it's unripe durian. Yeah, Pip says that it's the really spiky show, you need to wear something like a baseball mitt to handle it. <laughs> 
But I've tasted durian uh, candy, and I've tasted some durian other some durian stuff. It's and I actually happen to like it. So it's a it, you know once you get past the smell, it's it's actually pretty good. I think I had the durian candy once. I forget where I was where I bought it, and it, yeah, it wasn't. I mean, it was weird. It was like the first couple bites I had of it, I had to decide whether I actually liked it or not. But then, like about, I guess about two pieces in, I was like, yeah, I kind of like it. Because it was that different. I have not like natto, so... And for those of you unfamiliar with natto, it's fermented soybeans. A lot of folks just can't stomach it. I love it. I'll eat it right out of the package. Mm. Which means I probably doomed myself to be a... If I was fringery, to be one of the uh, diplomats. <laughs> Here, try this. What is it? Oh, it's curried pig's bladder. I don't want this. Give it to John. He'll eat it. Yeah, he'll eat anything. <laughs> <laughs> At least for a bite. I would probably say some type of exotic bird, if it were plentiful, some type of game bird, I mean. Like a like a bald eagle? Well, I ain't that mean, I mean. <laughs> but Well, I know they're plentiful in other worlds. Well, yeah, but still, I mean, we're not. Yeah, I would probably try, uh, Pip says uh, maybe um, quail or peacock, quail, yeah, quail and peacock pheasant. We've, we've totally forgotten the one culture that actually brought feasting to an actual art, Pax Romana. Oh, the Romans. Okay. Ah, yeah. Oh, oh, God, the Romans, what they could bring to a table. Uh, they'd be in competition with the Khan for stuff that, you know, stuffed Dormouse. They had their world at their disposal, so they could get the Middle Eastern, the, the South Asian, the Indian. Well, mo- yeah, yeah. Mostly, yeah, 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 North, yeah, most of Africa, North, most of Africa, most of, uh, well, they probably get, they still got China to worry about, and they still got India to worry about, because mainly because ge- geography, but yeah, Middle Eastern stuff, oh yeah, and, you know, stuff from the Urals, yeah, stuff from, you know, from their trade, yeah, so. But they used to eat some crazy stuff, and I'm trying to remember what some of that stuff was that I read about that the that the Romans used to like some, um, oh, man. Well, like, like, like stuffed Dormouse. What was that that fermented fish sauce that they used to like? Oh, uh, garum. Garum, yeah, that's it. And this the stuff was like really like that was how they got their salt. Oh, you like it? Do I like it? No, 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 no. Worcestershire sauce. Really? That's garum. Yeah, that's garum. <laughs> I thought it was like rotting fish. I thought it was fermented fish. Do you know how Worcestershire sauce is made? I do not. Look it up. Yeah, thanks, Sam. Thanks, John. <laughs> yeah, that too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's what we used to call hooster hooster shyster sooster sauce. But I also like fish sauce. So- fish sauce is actually really common. I actually have a big bottle of both Worcestershire and fish sauce, uh, Korean fish sauce. Most people don't think about it, though, you know? Oh, yeah. All right. Well, okay. Well, we learn something new every day. Yeah. Now, you just got to remember that you, you, you take away all the goblets from the Romans, though, because they probably oh. were bringing lead lined goblets to make the wine taste sweet. That's true. You have all the French pads out there. Surely somebody's out there managed to uh, create something akin to ambrosia. Be the Urters or it would be the uh, Arthurs? Uh, Arthurs are over in North America, right? I'm trying to remember. I don't remember. Well, the Urters are definitely in North or up in Scandinavia, so they're bringing Lutvisk. Oh, oh, Loris told me about that. Oh, which is it's jellied uh, herring and lye, but done right, it's very tasty. Done wrong, it's yeah, her- jellied herring and lie. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It has the same danger in production as either haggis or 
some of those pufferfish sushis that you can get from Japan. Fugu. Yeah. There would be plenty of opportunities for poisoning. So you better keep that uh, Tremelorin dock box on hand. Also, they, they probably would bring fermented shark, which I understand is absolutely vomitous. Then why would they bring it? Because it's a traditional dish. Ah, it's traditional. I didn't know that. Yes. <laughs> and they have acquired taste, you know. It's, it's stuff you serve you serve your guests and see if they throw up or not. I don't <laughs> If you were a Pax Romana, that would be helpful. Because they need to empty themselves before they go on to the next course. <laughs> so the Pax Romana guy goes... <laughs> I'm getting kind of full. I think I'm going to reach over to the Demixi plate and see if I can't can't rustle up some more room. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> I'm not sure whether this has been very helpful to our listeners. Eating your Christmas meal, but you know. <laughs> I do hope that you will add exotic foods and drink and things like that to your fringeworthy game because you know that's part of going to a strange and alien world. There's lots of new experiences that aren't just visual. You know, that, that are also gustieri and smell and everything else. When we were talking about props, having a bowl of strange exotic fruit and slicing them while you're running your game can be a way of introducing some strange and unusual aromas which can be added to you know your description of the feast. Yes. I will make a point out because I actually have access to strange and exotic fruit. Buy one first. And try it yourself, because you may it may not be what you expect it to be, and therefore you know it may not go over way for excuse right. me very well with your players. So yeah, always you know buy a cut one of each and then try them, and, and then serve the ones that come up tasting the best. Right. You don't want to end up with a big bowl of fruit no one wants to eat and you have to throw out. That's wasteful. Moving on to why. We have these kinds of things, these feasts and such. You know, why do we have all these exotic things on our table during our holidays? Lix, what do you think? I'm sorry. Could you repeat that? We have a lot of things on our holiday table that we don't normally eat during the rest of the year. Right. Why is that? Back during the earlier times, the things that were served during certain holidays were things that were in season at that time because – Hard to believe in this day and age. It used to be a time where you couldn't eat everything you wanted when you wanted it. There were times of the year where you couldn't get fresh tomatoes. And there were times, you know, when you there were certain meats you couldn't eat because they weren't in season to hunt. Whereas today, of course, we're spoiled. We can have anything we want whenever we want. Uh, so I think that's where a lot of the traditional meals come from or the meals that were, were – the foods that were available during that time. Uh, like uh, you'll find apples as part of like a – a lot of different um, holiday traditions because even though harvest time for apples is uh, early fall, late fall, apples store really well. You can actually put them in a barrel and store them for very long periods of time and they won't go bad. Uh, so you'll find apple pie you know, all year long almost. But things like – like I said, like tomatoes. You won't find tomatoes in traditional Christmas dishes. You know, There's not too much going on with tomatoes. Pip did bring up something. She says that it's kind of more associated with Thanksgiving. Winter's almost over, and everything you saved up in your food stores is about to go bad. So feast and be merry. Enjoy what you've earned with a hardworking harvest season. And Christmas kind of dot, dot, dot spills over into that. That's true. Let's go back to the, the tomato thing, just because I know tomatoes, don't, they don't store very long at all. You would have like a tomato relish during uh, Christmas time. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that there's a lot of canning going on. So you're going to get a lot of foods 
that are uh, canned foods during this period of time. There's also smoking, too. I've seen uh, smoked Romano tomatoes, which basically will last most of the winter, but you got to do them like in bulk. So, yeah, you need smokers to do, the, to do that. Does that look like a sun-dried? They put them on these big spindles, and they smoke them until they, till they basically all just shrivel up into uh, sun-dried tomatoes. But they're all smoked tomatoes, and they have that, all that wonderful either hickory or whatever kind of wood you're using, that wonderful f- f- smoke-infused flavor. Right, and they pretty much last a year because you keep you keep them dry, they won't rot, and you just you know check them yourself and make sure you you spot one rotting, you throw it away. Right, a lot of these traditions are very much linked to the winter. You, know, you don't see a lot of these traditions in the more temperate climes, and so you have a period of time where food isn't growing, and there's always the question of whether or not you're going to be able to survive until spring starts and food is going to be able to grow up. When people first came to America, they had some big surprises. Uh, When Columbus came over, he came to the southern part of the United States where it was temperate and there wasn't any really cold winter. When they came over to New England, it was a whole different story. When suddenly the fall came a lot earlier than they were expecting and it was colder than they were expecting and they didn't know how long the winter was going to last. And so there was some real fear involved in whether or not they were going to be able to survive those winters, and a lot of them didn't. So having uh, survived that winter and knowing how long it lasted, then the next year when you come around, you're like, okay, we know how long winter lasts. So when we get to the halfway point, then we can look at how much food we have left and anything that isn't necessary for us to get to the end of winter, you know, we've been scrimping up till now to make sure we got to this point, and now all the extra that's left over, that's when you have a party. That's when you start pulling out, you know, the stuff that you didn't have that much of because, you know, now we've gotten to the middle, you know, to the middle, we can see that we're going to be able to make it to the end. Now let's bring out that special stuff that we were saving till this time when we knew we were going to survive, that extra we were holding back, and we can all have a big party and feast. Stonehenge was put in place to measure things like the equinox and the and the solstice. So yeah, you have the longest night of the year coming. Is the sun going to start coming back earlier and earlier? We don't know until after the solstice. So the solstice becomes a major event, uh, religiously, astrologically, it's a major event. It's the longest night of the year. Will the sun come up the next day? We don't know. Yeah, Pip brought that up about regardless of whether it's the Christian Christmas or the pagan Yule or Kwanzaa or whatever you celebrate this time of year. The winter solstice is a time of celebration as the turning of the year and the your, the, your halfway there marker of winter. And depending on your religion, it has symbolic meanings pertaining to your savior of choice. I think it still falls back on celestially and astronomically more than religion. I think the religion would have been tied into that. So I think the default would be calendar, celestial bodies, weather. You have Yule. Uh, the pagans also had Saturnalia. I discussed this with my roommate. He's pagan. Well, Saturnalia is actually Roman, but, you know. Well, okay, yeah, that's right. It was Roman. But still, there were all these end-of-the-year winter solstice festivals and it just, it is a time for celebration because days are getting longer. And that, if you're in a cold winter, like it's, I'm in Detroit, uh, Blix is in Baltimore, 
Pip's also here in the Detroit area. I'm sorry, Amber. And, you know, it gets cold in these parts. And so, yeah, you want to know that the days are going to start longer and it's going to start getting warmer. Because I'm up in Seattle. About 5 o'clock, it's dark out. Yep, same here. Yep. Yeah, and it's, you, you, after a while, you start going, well, when's the sun going to come back? You know, and up here in Seattle, it's gray all the time. We've actually been having a lot of rain recently, so it's been rainy, gray, and dark. You know, wow, yeah. And the good thing most people here are Scandinavian of, of uh, extraction. <laughs> Sorry, that term, that term, Laura uses it. Yeah. The- yeah. <laughs> But because you're having a festival, because you are celebrating this fact, it's an opportunity for you to bring out something special to to commemorate. And so in uh, later time periods when they have good trade and things like that, a lot of people would go and they would order foods, exotic foods from far away to bring out on that day or during that festival to make it special. So you weren't just eating the same old stuff you've been eating up till now, or even sometimes not even the stuff that you had grown yourself. You would bring out something new. Plus, there's always the one-upping your neighbor. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, you know, in a thing like this, in a big celebration like this, you're going to have some people, uh, you know, because these are communities that come together a lot of times. So you're going to have people trying to outdo the other people, you know, any kind of cooking competition, you know. But yeah, the the cooking competitions, that is true. I mean, everybody, and it's not, it's partly a competition, but I would also say it's a communal helping type of thing where it's like, yeah, we're all going to try to see who's the best pie, but in the end, we're all going to partake of this bounty. Oh yeah, well you know, I mean, John, you, you're a cooker, and I'm a I'm a cooker. I, I, we John and I are both foodies. We love to cook and and eat all kinds of stuff. Um, I take pride in my cooking, and and I've become a good cook because of that. And so whenever there are other cooks about, I want to show my chops, you know. So yeah, yeah I'm I am going to compete with them in a very friendly kind of way. You know, I'm not trying to to make anyone feel bad about whatever they've cooked, but at the same time. I want people to know that, hey, I take pride in what I do. I really like, you know, I really like what I'm doing and and I want to show it off. That sort of falls into like Northwestern American Indian potlatch. I have all this stored food. I'm I'm wealthy. I'm I'm going to give it all away. And one big festival. I got my here's all these things and I'm just going to show my wealth by giving it away. I think that may be where, you know, we all come together and bring something that may have been where the term potluck comes from could be mm-hmm. i'm i'm going on a limb here but just I'm, I'm seeing similarity between the two so you know all the harvest festivals i mean that's what thanksgiving is it's a harvest festival well yeah and they all usually take place around oh, the uh the equinox in fact if you look at the united states we have three celestial themed uh, you know or at least they're close to a celestial event you got Thanksgiving near the autumnal equinox. We got Christmas near the winter solstice. We have Easter really close to the uh, spring equinox. And then we have Fourth of July next to the um, summer summer solstice. All these holidays, they wouldn't have taken off as, as, as big as they have if there wasn't a huge tradition. In it. They would not be our major holidays. As far as Christmas, our holiday tradition whether it's Yule, Saturnalia, whatever, it usually had to do with the winter solstice. And it's just a matter of the weather and days getting shorter. And, I mean, it may not be bad weather. I mean, still, 
dark is dark. Uh, now, one thing you, you have to consider as well, too, is the, I was just thinking that, you know, when it comes to summer, the summer solstice, there really isn't much in the way of celebrations because it wasn't very special. It was just a long day. It's the middle of summer. The equinoxes were actually important because the, the, the autumnal equinox, you, you, you're heading for winter at that point. You know you're heading to winter and the days are getting shorter. The spring equinox, you know you're heading to summer. The nights are getting shorter and the days are getting longer. Spring equinox, you know you've gotten out of the winter entirely. So, yeah, it was a form of celebration. Birds are hatching, trees are re-brooping. Yeah. Re-blooming. <laughs> re-brooping, that too. Yeah. Uh, they're re-blooming and the weather's clearing up. So, yeah, Ostara, that's a form of celebration, which we, the Christians use as Easter. Pagans call it Ostara. All of the uh, festivals that we have in our culture, in one way or another, can be traced back to a pagan form of one, of, and usually had to do with weather, astronomy. Places that don't actually have the extremes of weather like we have, you have the other weathers, like you know, in India, there you have the monsoon. I would imagine there's probably dinner, there's probably feasts and stuff like that centered around the monsoon season as well, and there's probably. You know the different weather patterns and so forth. You know it's 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 a lot. A lot of it comes down to weather. Now we look at species like yeah the Nixie. They're carnivores. Sadly, being a carnivore means every day is a harvest day. If you're going to take that into account, if the Demixie have a seasonal weather pattern like humans do, they're going to have where hey during the winter there aren't going to be that many animals to hunt. Because those bugs are either going to be burrowing into the ground or dead. They may end up having a winter hunting festival where the Demixie are out there digging in the frozen ground to look for a bug. Or looking for the really big ones, which can be getting rarer and rarer, considering that they, they, they've kind of damaged their, their environment. Um, so, yeah, the, the big bull pill bug they had to hunt down and bring in, for, you know, bring in for the festival, you know, the one that stands the size of a bison. Or you could do something like they did in Adam's family, where they go out uh, and uh, dig up the relatives. Yeah, Halloween. Adam's family did it very Halloween. Get to meet your, get to meet your grand uncle. Right, but I mean, if if you, you might be able to digest them as well, it might be a holiday. It's <laughs> basically, you know, recycle the family members. You know? Yeah, yeah. And, and no cannibalism. Yeah. Or they could actually, I can see them a variation of the seven year uh, cicada. You know, they know once every seven years, this one species of critter pupates and comes out of the ground, and it's feast time. We catch them by the bucket loads, and we have dinner. Besides the religious reasons and the fact that it's the center of the whole uh, dark and, and uh, cold period where you're just glad to know that you're going to be able to survive to the end, or you get to the middle and you realize you're not going to survive the end, so why not have a party? Because we're all going to die anyways. There is another good reason, and there's this thing called uh, seasonal affective disorder. A more common term, which is called cabin fever. Or the winter blues, yeah. Right, which is where you have been spending all your time inside, much like we do around our computers all the time. <laughs> you know, but the fact is that wouldn't know that. Wouldn't know right. that. Right, but in a more traditional culture, they didn't have all these entertainments, so they were forced to stay inside for heat and for safety and shelter uh, against the weather. 
Uh, and they were you know, stuck, literally stuck in these rooms close together, fairly small dwellings for months on time. And this was a reason to for everyone to get out and do something outside and keep everybody from literally killing their families. Uh, LinkedIn, you not not enough sunlight, not enough uh, good air. It's it's literally an opportunity for exercise. So you have parties, you have dances, you have uh, hunts, you have all these things that normally you wouldn't engage in, but for the the tribe's health and safety, it's uh, these things happen. So for very practical reasons, you could have a midwinter festival that is not religious, though I'm sure they would turn it into a religious reason because that's what gives it the power and authority. But really, there's some very good psychological, biological reasons why you'd want to have a, a midwinter party. Yeah, I can imagine Demixie having, uh, because of the lack of soft-shelled, uh, you know, well, critters like us, mammals and reptiles, you know, uh, they probably uh, all the fi- they probably do have fish, but they're probably all heavy, hard-scaled, you know, fish. I can imagine, you know, similar to a salmon run coming back. You know, coming back to spawn, the species of arthropod, of, of, of totally aquatic arthropod coming back to spawn. And they're there just to, you know, snatch them up. It's a yearly thing. It happens every, you know, say every every fall. The bugs come back. The bugs come back to spawn. And they're there to catch as many as they can, knowing full well that what's left behind will spawn and raise another batch for next year. You know, so it's a, a big festival. Right. Of course, in the, in considering that their environment's polluted and and damaged, uh, they probably also gain their daily rations of mercury and iodine as well when you do that. But you know, <laughs> all right, well, let's talk about some of our favorite uh, myths and traditions of this holiday season. One of the ones that I, I did some research on was mistletoe. We see it primarily as a reason to smooch, but there were a lot of other good reasons to do it. There were a lot of legends about spirits that were in the woods. And, and there was a big question, is when winter comes, where do all these woodland spirits go? Well, most of them were believed to go to trees, trees that do not drop their leaves, trees that remain green throughout the wintertime, otherwise known as pine or evergreen trees. One of the plants that's like that, it isn't, it is an evergreen, but it's not a tree, is the holly and the mistletoe. So a lot of people believe that there were woodland spirits in the mistletoe. And so by clipping some of the mistletoe and taking it into your home, this was a way of bringing the spirits, the life of the forest, which the spirits also were, into your home and blessing your home. There's a legend saying that uh, there were these two warring groups that uh, came together and instead of fighting each other when they met, they instead embraced each other, and it happened that they were in a grove of mistletoe. And so that's also a tradition that when you come and uh, when you go under the mistletoe, you grab each other and you hug and kiss instead of fighting. And it's a, a symbol of peace uh, and goodwill. I can see two Vikings doing that, but never mind. Well, a lot of these traditions actually comes out of the Norse culture. Like I said, I can see two Vikings doing it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, instead of fighting each other. But uh, the one thing that most people don't do with the mistletoe is the fact is that when you kiss or hug under the mistletoe, you're supposed to reach up and pluck one of the berries 
take it away with you. So when a mistletoe is is run out of berries, you got to get some more mistletoe. Don't eat those berries. Yes, they are very poisonous. Pip said there's also old folklore that the mistletoe oil gave off a scent that repelled unwanted spirits, that it would naturally repel evil and mischievous spirits. Um, she said it was kind of used in a Doctor Who episode where monks trained a wolf to hate the smell so they could control it in nature. Um, the druids were really big into holly mistletoe, and I'm sure they had their rituals of it. She said a werewolf. Okay, she mistyped. Not a wolf, but a werewolf. Uh, but yeah, holly and mistletoe, those plants were attributed to have mystical powers by the druids and the Celts and the Norse. They've been co-opted into our current holiday customs. I'm not sure what holly would have in our current custom. I know, you know, they just spoke of the mistletoe. You kiss under the mistletoe during the Christmas season. I'm not sure about holly. Okay, this uh, had to do with the god of the summer sun, Balder, and this is a Viking myth. Balder had a dream that he was going to die, and his mother, Frigga, the goddess of love and beauty, was very afraid of this dream. And she said that if he died, everything on earth would die. And to ensure her son's safety, she went to all the elements, air, fire, water, and earth, as well as all the animals and plants, and asked them not to kill Balder. Balder was teased uh, and had things thrown at him, but because of his mother's agreement with the plants, he was immune to all harm. But Balder did have an enemy, Loki, and he found a loophole in Frigga's request, which was mistletoe, because mistletoe grows on the tree it attaches itself to and therefore has no roots on of his own and could not be affected by Frigga's request. And he made a poison dart with the mistletoe and tricked the blind brother of Balder, Hodor, into shooting the arrow that killed Balder. So for three days, all the elements tried their hardest to bring Balder back to life and failed. And finally, Frigga cried and her tears changed the red mistletoe to white and raised Balder from the dead. And Frigga then reversed the mistletoe's bad reputation by doing so and kissed everybody who walked underneath it out of gratitude for getting her son back. And so therefore, that's why you kiss somebody under the mistletoe, because it, it's a symbol of good health and love and affection. I, I remember hearing about that. I wasn't sure of the exact story. I remember hearing something about it being Norse myth and Balder dying from it and everything. I, I'm, I'm glad I didn't try it and really mess that up. Thank you. <laughs> Any other holiday traditions uh, that you guys are aware of? Well, there's the, the Yule tree, which is where our Christmas tree comes from a pagan thing that has been adopted by the uh, modern-day Christmas celebrations. Uh, I believe it was the Celtic Druids that started all that. And it's something about as a symbol of the universe because it's an evergreen, because it never loses its, um, its foliage. It's also because it is a symbol of what's considered the world poles, the north and south poles. This is very strong and powerful in a lot of religions, especially... The Hindu religion, yes, okay. Yeah, the Hindu religion. The India god Siva, also known as the world teacher, has five faces but always faces south, which means that could only happen if he's at the North Pole. 
There's a lot of ideas saying that the North Pole is very significant. It's a very powerful mystic spot, as the South Pole is also. But in the Northern Hemisphere, we have the North Star, which also points at the pole, which is a fixed location of space, also very significant, very powerful. So we put a lot of emphasis into the North Pole because of some of these things. Because of an evergreen shape, it, you know, it is a very oriented thing. It basically, it's an arrow that points straight up, and therefore it has a north-south pole and an axis through the center of it, which is also one reason why it's considered a very powerful symbol. Our modern uh, Christmas tree actually comes from customs that are actually done during the uh, Renaissance uh, era in northern Germany. A lot, of the, a lot of the guilds would use these evergreen trees to help celebrate the, uh, the year, because it, as Bruce said, they represent uh, internal life, because, you know, they're always green. They're evergreen. They're the promise of spring. In the middle of, of a whole forest full of dead-looking trees, you have this tree that is still alive. It went from northern Germany and spread to all the nobility. So actually, your common person didn't have a Christmas tree. It was the, the nobility had a, had a Christmas tree or Yule tree. You know, it finally tickled, trickled its way down to the common man, but, you know, it was a thing the rich people had. Speaking of the difference between rich people and the common man... Oh, Boxing Day, yes. December 26th, yes. I want to bring up Boxer Day, because I yeah. think that's a really cool, uh, neat little holiday. Boxing Day, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not Boxer Day, Boxing Day, right. Yeah, and because there was one day, I was looking at my calendar, I'm like, Art, what the heck is Boxing Day? So I went to the font of all knowledge. You mean John? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just on alternate Thursdays. It was, it's really cool. For, for those of you who don't know, I mean, I would look it up on wik, wik, the wikis if I were you because it's interesting. But that was when the poor got to celebrate their Christmas because they generally – or the poor servants of the households would work for the rich. Um, and then the rich – because the poor back then were really poor. They didn't get presents so much. Uh, they could, a present was a, was a loaf of bread having food to eat. But the uh, the rich people of the house would set all their presents in boxes for them on the day after Christmas because they always had to work Christmas because they were attending all the guests that you know because the families would be hosting all these meals and stuff and of course the servants wouldn't get off for that day but they would generally get the next day off uh, and they would they would have there would be a box with with presents for them to give to their family. Pip mentioned something about the trees here. She recalls hearing something where it used to be a bad thing to cut down a Christmas tree. Because they used to believe the trees were filled with fairy and wood sprites, and if you cut down the tree, you trap the fairies in it, and as the tree died, the sprites died too. These trees that were green, these plants that were green, held spirits of the woods, yeah. Would they decorate these trees outside? Because I know there was a tree decoration thing, so I'm guessing... Oh, and that's why it wasn't dangerous to put candles on them, because I know they used to. They, the lights that we put on them represent the candles that they used to put on the trees. Well, they would use expensive wax candles. I mean, you know, we're talking, this is like, Renaissance era, beeswax candles are something that, you know, cost you a few bucks. So, yeah, it was a, like I said, a rich person's thing. Only the rich could afford to put lights on the tree. Or it could be like a community thing. I would imagine sometimes the whole community, you know, in smaller like towns and stuff, like like small townships, they would have a a town tree. I would imagine that they would, um, or, or even if they didn't, you know, you're in your Frenchworthy game, you could do that. I was just going to put on a, gr- a good depiction of what it would be like for poor people, even though it's entirely fictionalized, is the Dickens story, a Christmas Carol, a Christmas Carol. 
Bob Cratchit. His family, how they were going to celebrate Christmas is pretty much how the poor in England celebrate Christmas. They'd be lucky they get a uh, chicken for Christmas. A goose? Forget that. Daddy, I've caught me a big old rat. Let's stick it in the oven and cook it up for Christmas dinner. Except they didn't have ovens. They would have to contract with the local bakeries to bake their Christmas meal. Right. Yeah, most of the poor during the 1800s did not have their own oven. They they had like a small stovetop to cook sauces and pots and warm things on, but they didn't actually have an oven. That's right. A little funny story here real quick, the, the whole Christmas tree with the candles on it. Um, when I was growing up, a, a buddy of mine in high school, his father, he, his father was from Germany, and he used to love to do the traditional tree. And he would literally put candles on his tree in the house. <laughs> he caught the house on fire oh. one year. It wasn't bad. The house didn't burn down, and it wasn't that bad. It's just funny because <laughs> if a tree was black – uh, but <laughs> so, so <laughs> don't light candles on your tree in your house. Here's something I want to ask. The glass ornaments that we have, I would like to know the custom on that. I am looking at my roommate's uh, about five foot tall tree with a little uh, tinsel covered star atop it. And we have these these glass balls and bulbs that we hang on on the branch. Like like most like most ostentatious design on on Christmas trees and so forth comes from Germany. It was a German invention again. You know, they would create these little glass they're all they were blown glass balls and decorated with silvery on the inside, you know. They basically was a, it was a German Ah, uh, yes, from the German town of Blingenstein. Yes. <laughs> Blingenstein. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, no, it's, it's from this German town of Lascha. Oh, yeah, that was my second guess, John. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, the, the, some of the early ones were just basically glass beads that looked you know, that you'd, you'd use to sell popcorn uh, and tin figures. That's another – oh, wow, yeah, I haven't done it. And, and occasionally you put cranberries on with the popcorn. Yeah, garland. You know, that's another – But it's a recent invention. It's only 1847. Right. Was when the first ones were seen. So yeah, it's a really recent invention. Before that, it'd be more like you said, garlands. But, but all these things are designed to be done not by a person by themselves, but by yeah. a family or a community. So it's all all ways of bringing communities together. And you should certainly use that in your Fringeworthy or even Bureau Thirteen game. Another custom that we have for Christmas, if if anyone there knows, candy canes. They're yummy. Yeah, because the candy cane always looked to me like the uh, barber's pole, and the barber's pole had more to do with uh, healing and and, uh, and doctoring than anything else. Or maybe a shepherd's crook. Definitely associated with 1670 in Cologne, Germany. Another German invention. I'm noticing a lot of Germanic influence here. Which is why we really didn't celebrate it as a national holiday until sometime, what, uh, late late 19th century? Puritans did not do Christmas. I talked with uh, Eric the Enabler after my show last night because I told him we were doing this. And he said that before what we know as Santa, which as I said, it, what we know as Santa was made by the Coca-Cola company. Before then it was like Father Christmas and it wasn't quite all that festive it was kind of a rather solemn holiday where okay we're reflecting on the past year and what we've been through the joy happy christmas that we know that came about due to the 
current Santa Claus that, as I said, the Coca-Cola Foundation made, and I don't know the year, but, you know, the fat man with the red suit with the white, you know, trim. The Thomas Nast drawing. Thomas Nast, Coca-Cola, and Twas the Night Before Christmas. But there's lots of traditions of gift-giving in the middle of winter, usually by one figure or another. I mean, in one culture, the gift-giver is a goat that comes around and, and gives presents. Don't tell Tim Cask that. Don't tell him that, or Jay Libby. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully they're going to listen to this. <laughs> when I was doing my research on Santa Claus and, of course, the other figures that are very Santa-like, and there's a host of them, the one thing I thought was interesting was that in most cultures where they have such a figure as Santa Claus, it isn't like our culture where it's literally Santa is 100%. He's, you know, Mr. Give it away for nothing. Okay, he just basically says, you're a good boy or girl, here's a present for you. In a lot of cultures, there's some work expected on your behalf. You're supposed to sing songs to Santa or their equivalent. Uh, In one culture, they're supposed to take their shoes, they put their shoes out, and they stuff them with poems to their Santa figure. And later on, they come back and they find that the poems are gone and there's candies left behind. Santa gets something out of this deal. There's some holiday cheer that has to go in both directions. And I think that's important to add, you know, when you create a Christmas tradition, that it's not a one-sided gift-giving. There is something on both sides, and that's why there's a celebration. Yeah, I can see Santa going to these kids going, okay, you little brats, I got to travel around the wood and one night give you all gifts. I'm going to make it work for it. Yeah, I can see him there with the stogie in his mouth. Yeah. Well, don't forget, December 5th was a Krampus Day, and I forgot which culture it is, but if you weren't a good little girl and boy, Santa wouldn't have to worry about you. Krampus would catch you and eat you. Right. There's pictures of him, like, stuffing kids in bags and running off with them. Well, Black Pete does that, too. Another thing is, is that that goes a whole gamut. Like, um... Uh, there's there's another version of the, of the Krampus story. Uh, again, I don't know if this is like a later transition or this is you know something a little more subtle to tell the kids if you don't want to like terrify your kids. Where there's the Krampus isn't that mean. Like he doesn't in in some of the legends or some of the way it's told, he doesn't take the children, but he will come with Santa. He'll actually travel with Santa. He can whip the boys and girls, or he can he's the one that would give them coal. Or if they were really bad, then he would take them. So there's you know there's there's different degrees to to the, to the legend of the Krampus. But he's always depicted as a devilish looking creature. So I mean I've seen some pictures where it looked like he was you know like the devil himself. Uh, but I've also seen other pictures where he's just like a slick gentleman. You know, sort of like a uh, a very uh, like somebody you wouldn't want picking up your daughter in a nightclub. <laughs> okay. You know, one of the things I was going to say was is that so he looks like Brad Pitt, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was, was, was going to say, you know, in the in this in the like the 18th century, you know, you've got these English guys sitting around and they're going, "Hey, hey, look at those crazy Ashens! What the heck are they celebrating?" It sort of comes from both the Dutch. And it's another Germanic tradition because, you know, because in a way, Santa Claus looks a bit like Odin, except he's got two good eyes. Kind of does, yeah, yeah. And in, in some of the other legends, he's he's not like a big fat dude. Like, that's that's recent. Like, I've seen a lot of pictures like of, of St. Nicholas, and he's not a big heavy set dude. 
some people think that he's based on Thor because Thor is this very powerfully built guy with a big red beard. He has a chariot that's pulled through the sky by two goats. By goats. <laughs> instead of it being reindeer. Which he eats for dinner and they come back. <laughs> we're not, we're not going to explain how they come back, but they come back. When you have gods producing offspring by their heads split open and the, and the offspring step out fully formed, anything's possible. That's true. That's it. This Christmas celebration, I'm working a goat into our Christmas somehow. <laughs> I think goats should be part of Christmas. I was just looking at this in the background on Santa Claus. Uh, he, re- he may have been based on St. Nicholas of Myra, a, uh, a Greek bishop, which probably means he was Greek Orthodox. Yeah, that's why they have a St. Nicholas, because it's based upon a fellow. He was a cardinal who was very known, well known for his uh, work with the community and, and uh, taking care of the poor and things like that. And supposedly he went around and gave presents to the children. There's lots of historical figures that could be considered to be, you know, part, uh, you know, the, the personification of Santa Claus. Yeah, but you, you never see a Ranklin Bash uh, depiction of that, though. <laughs> They did Rudolph Red-Nosed Reindeer. They basically they did an origin story for Santa Claus, where he was blonde and uh, has a chin like you wouldn't believe. Oh, okay. Yeah, they were all in the 70s. This is Bruce Sheffer saying, there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying, keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players. This is Amber. It's all fun and games until the DM rolls a one. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. This was the Fringeworthy Podcast. This podcast is protected under the Creative Commons license. Have a Merry Christmas.